Siobhan Lancaster, how are you? I'm good, Matt. How are you? Glad to, well, do you know what? I think we're actually both ill, aren't we? We're both a little bit ill, but we're powering through for the uranium universe and we're going we're gonna to do this thing today. So if there's yep. a few bits of rambling and the old forgetfulness on my part, I apologize. Um, yes, I do too. I've blamed COVID. I've blamed COVID. But what are we going to talk about today? Well, look, I thought last week we did a really interesting conversation about mines um, and uranium. And this time we would put it together on the other side and talk about nuclear energy and policy and demand going forward. So it should be an interesting conversation. Um, I know that I can talk about this in the pub all night. I'm not sure about you. Um, So hopefully everyone gets some benefit out of it. Yeah, I, I hope so. So we're, we're basically going to focus on where the demand's coming from. We're going to ban, we do what we did last time, which I thought was great. Just bounce around the world. So see who's, who's doing what um, and, you know, where it's coming from. And basically, at the end of the day, have we got enough of this stuff? Is that about right? That's about right. And and we're also going to talk about forecasts and the way they work and, and really um, where we think the forecasts can really change from what the World Nuclear Association is saying at the moment. Um, certainly, I think the trend is is going in an upward direction, um, which plays well into the hands for uh, uranium um, and the supply side of the story. I think there's going to be a massive imbalance um, coming through. Uh, right. So- and and what, do, what does massive imbalance mean, Siobhan? Scarcity. More- Scarcity and increased prices. <laughs> there we go. Right. So I guess that's the purpose of this is basically kind of sense check the, the thesis and go, right, we, we've we've had a little bit of a look on the uh, supply side last time. We're going to talk a little bit about the demand side this time and we'll kind of bring it together in a kind of more holistic uh, conversation in, in a couple of weeks. We're doing M&A next week, aren't we? M&A. Love a M&A, bit of M&A. That's going to be a great discussion. I'm really looking forward to that one. And we're bringing out the big guns. The we big are guns are coming out for that one. Yes. Okay. Well, look, why don't you kind of crack on and um, sort of talk us through this uh, deck that you kindly put together for us today, uh, and, and I'll ask some dumb questions along the way. Yeah, sure. So um, I thought it'd be really interesting to show people um, where the nuclear power production comes from at the moment. So obviously the biggest user of nuclear power in the world at the moment is the US, followed by China, who's actually a relatively new entrant uh, to the nuclear power story. So um, they've really only just started building nuclear powers and I'll show you the age of their nuclear power plants compared to the US, which will give you a good idea of where we're at. But they are due to overtake Right, the okay. US. So um, so just tell us what we're kind of looking at here. Maybe th- throw out a few numbers because there's going to be people listening in on podcasts who perhaps um, haven't quite um, got the ability to see on their mobile phones the the level of detail that you've thrown into this. Yeah, sure. So obviously nuclear energy, 10% of the world's electricity. So that's a big figure there, right? Um, and the US uh, has 30.9% of nuclear power production. China was 13.5%, followed by France, who actually um, decarbonized their whole grid um, in the space of 20 years. Um, which is uh, fantastic for them. Um, They've got 13%, followed by Russia and then Korea. Um, Of course, Japan used to be up there as one of the biggest users of nuclear energy, um, but following Fukushima, they had some change in policy. We're going to talk about the reversal of that change in policy as we go through. So once again, you see a really concentrated um, sort of 71.6% of the world's nuclear power production comes from just five countries, similar to the supply side of the story that we spoke about last week. Um, So what's also fascinating is that none of these countries mentioned here, except for Russia, are actually uh, suppliers of uranium. That's interesting, isn't it? That is interesting. Um, Yes, the U.S. used to be obviously a big supplier of uranium, but um, you know they've a very very small amount of production these days. Um, of course, China very minuscule. Um, they do own a lot of mines, as we discussed last week, um, and and Russia probably uh, has the most amount of supply coming out. Um, but yeah, really, all the countries that use nuclear don't actually have the uranium um, uh, resources behind them. Yeah, but but that's why these groups like Russia obviously doing deals with Kazatomprom, um, maybe even Kazumping their their um, friends in China. We'll, we'll see what happens there. But let's let's stick, let's stick with the um, 
demand side um, a little bit more. So um, if, if we kind of if we kind of look at all of the kind of countries involved here, it, we put them in. These are in percentages, right? In terms of, yeah. of the current number. The purpose of this conversation is to say, well, some of those percentages may change a little bit as policy changes and as people get pro nuclear, as people get pro cheap base low energy. Um, but the total quantum is going to significantly change as well because we've got new technologies coming in such as SMRs, which will just make it that little bit easier as well, won't it? Yeah, well, I mean, the World Nuclear Association, the high case is looking at a doubling of nuclear uh, capacity um, by 2040, which is quite substantial. Um, uh, but I actually am going to argue throughout this that the case is somewhat higher than that um, because uh, really what we're looking at is SMRs, which is new technologies coming in. It's really um, uh, if the building of those SMRs is a, as fast as what the SMR suppliers are telling us, then, um, you know, this this has uh, the capacity to grow a lot more than, um, than uh, what it says in those uh, WNA forecasts. So we'll talk about that as we go through. But obviously China, um, they're going to be building more nuclear power plants than the whole world combined. Uh, so they will significantly move up the rankings here um, from 2020. There we go. There we go. You've, you have been you have been advised, folks. Yeah. Right. Onwards and upwards. What are we clicking at next? Well, this basically shows which countries have the n- most number of reactors and and what's happened since Fukushima. So we of course know that we had the the Fukushima. Um, uh, incident, and there was a lot of changes in nuclear policy at that point. Um, what that basically meant was that instead of extending nuclear power plants around the world, um, uh, there's actually been some power plant shutages. Now, this is really reversing now, and, and we can talk about why that is. Um, but you can see, uh, actually, the United States has gone backwards by 12 nuclear power plants. Of course, the only uh, country that has actually really significantly grown is is China since 2011. And the real reason for that, is, if you've ever been to China, is the air pollution that they have there. So basically, um, their energy has really been um, led by coal over the years. And of course, that is a massive pollutant in cities and they were having huge pollution problems. So nuclear power was, of course... A really good way to combat that um, in China and still is going forward. So a key part of it, as well as decarbonisation, obviously as well. Yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. I'm looking at the UK, obviously, cause where, where I'm where I'm based. You know, we're we're minus four, but again, it comes back to that. I guess the whole of Europe has woken up, you know, because of the you know Ukraine situation. Um, that cost of energy has driven a sort of change in policy, um, and these these sort of long term. Decision-making policies have been shortened considerably. Certainly here that in the UK, um, it's happening across Europe. Maybe not in Germany, but you know most most other countries in Europe. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they do that. And I, can, and I keep coming back to that. You know, which these numbers are purely about um, nuclear reactors. Um, does not include SMRs. Is that right? Uh, so the number in the WA scenarios does include SMRs in a very small manner. So really, that's only the ones that have already been agreed upon. Um, so if, for example, the US decides to go really heavily into the SMRs and convert all of their coal into SMRs, then it doesn't even scratch the edges with what they've got in the nuclear WNA forecast. So um, that's a really big deal. And let's just go through why policies are shifting in favour of nuclear energy um, because, you know, it's unfortunate that we've been given a hard time really over the years. Um, really, energy security is a big part of that. Um, so we've seen, obviously, the, the, the war in Ukraine has really, uh, particularly in Europe and um, even in Japan, uh, made, made uh, people really look at energy security um, and the cost of gas versus nuclear power. As we know, it's very energy-dense nuclear power, but also baseload energy. You know, we're looking around the world at renewables coming in and there's no replacement for baseload energy. So nuclear energy prices have gone up massively. Um, it's uh, a very small footprint compared to renewables as well. And, um, and of course, um, small modular reactors, they're cheaper and faster than large-scale nuclear, which is um, something that's very tempting to policymakers around the world. 
so tell me this, right? You've got you've got countries like Australia, which is a big uranium producer, well, as a byproduct from Olympic Dam. Um, you've obviously got you know multiple Aussie companies with assets in Western Australia, North Ter- Northern Territories, Queensland, etc. Policy there is doesn't seem particularly pro uh, nuclear, and there's certainly a lot of rhetoric around the the cost of building reactors, etc. So even though it probably has the ability to actually produce enough energy for its own needs, it's not doing it. So what happens in countries like that, situations like that? Is there enough drive from uh, consumers to say, we there's an obvious solution for much cheaper electricity or energy uh, for us, but and we want it now? Is Will, will that change policy? Or, I think or is there still enough... Yeah. I, I personally think the back pocket makes voters uh, really change opinions on a lot of things. Um, so, uh, you know, the problem with renewables is they're cheap to install. So there's this ridiculous argument that they're cheaper than nuclear. But if you nu- look at a nuclear power plant, it can last from 80 to 100 years, right? So it might be expensive to install, but it runs and it runs and it runs. And then it has a very cheap um, fuel component to it so that the fuel component is only 10% of the operating cost of a nuclear power plant. But of course, the problem with nuclear energy and the large nuclear energy has always been the cost of capital. So I don't know if everyone knows this, but 40% of the cost of installing a nuclear power plant has been the cost of capital. And as we know, the cost of capital expands the longer the time frame is to build something. So a lot of the political policy and decision makers and red tape around building nuclear power plants has actually fulfilled the prophecy that nuclear power is expensive. If there was a will to actually build it and do it quickly, that cost of capital would come down immensely. But the thing about the small modular reactors is the cost of capital is far less. And that is what is so appealing about them. And that is what makes the small modular reactors something that is very, very appealing to uh, policymakers compared to the large-scale um, reactors out there because you can basically put in one reactor and then you can scale it up once you've paid the capital costs and it's up and running. So um, very efficient and uh, if you start comparing that to the cost of renewables and the transmission lines, for example, that have to be built into the cost of renewables, which no one ever talks about, uh, then you know the costs actually look very reasonable. Well, especially especially if we get some of these uh, renewable energy um, incentives from the government, um, lots and lots of money being splashed around for for windmills and solar um, parks. That's for sure. Um, just, just on the the technology itself, obviously there's a, there's a lot of different um, SMR designs out there. In the UK, we've kind of got Rolls Royce. Well, um, you need you've got uh, Westinghouse. You've kind of got the Nimble Dragon out of China. The you've got the the, the Russians have got their own. Hitachi. Um, Hitachi, yeah. you know, so lots and lots of different. Is, is there room for all of the above, or do you think there's going to be some sort of level of standardization? Um, with well, the I think there has to be. Design? So, if you really want to roll these out on a large scale, um, you need to have regulatory approval of a few key SMRs, right? And and what the regulatory bodies are looking at doing at the moment is this thing called harmonisation, where basically they all get together, they agree that a particular model has you know has been licensed and then they look at the standards for the envelope around that license so then rather than individually licensing every single SMR you're basically licensing a type of SMR and the types of things that need for it to be licensed um, and so it's it's much less bespoke and you can roll them out on a much greater um, in a much greater way so more efficient um, so I think there'll be fewer than 80 because there's currently 80 models in the market um, and it'll probably come down to, you know, five to ten key ones that are supported around the world. Wow. Wow. I didn't realise. 80. Gosh. And, and they'll probably be more similar to the existing large-scale reactors but scaled down. They seem to be the ones that are getting licensed for at the moment. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see the, how, how that all plays out, who the, who the winners are. Obviously, the US is throwing a lot. Because it's not it's not just the um, d- design and build of these, whether it be reactors or, or SMRs, when, when these countries are selling their, their products, as it were. It's what it represents in terms of political willingness to you know work with russians or chinese or you know uh, uh, or others you know there's a kind of 
geopolitical component to it still. Um, you know, and I think that that kind of sphere of influence is being peddled, you know, hard by you know the, the Russians um, into Middle East, into uh, it, it, well parts of Asia. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how all, all that, again that that plays out because I think the U.S. are finally woken up and perhaps they they don't want those sorts of relationships existing. Yeah, look, space. I think the U.S. has finally woken up to the fact that they want to remain, you know, the main um, sort of nuclear powerhouse, nuclear energy, I should say, powerhouse they, around the world. And um, and so I, I think um, they their licensing body is uh, is is, is going to get in there and they'll really push those SMRs um, down the path. So they've been a bit slow to the game. We're going to talk about that later, but I think they'll accelerate as time goes on. Well, certainly, and, and I think the interesting thing is obviously, you know, finance comes into it as well because you, you talk about, you know, 40% of the cost um, is this the cost of capital. But again, governments will have a slightly different view on, again, where they want the sphere of influence, um, you know, and their, their preparedness to actually finance for countries perhaps would struggle to afford, um, you know, nuclear energy such as in Africa. So no. a, a, again, a lot to play for. Um, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting times because if you look at you know the St. Petersburg conference with Putin and and the Af the the Africa conference there, you know he he was peddling a lot of that. I'm sure that hasn't gone down well in Washington, um, but it'll be interesting to see what they do about it. Um, so I think a big part of this for me is the is the, is the joy of the geopolitics. Of energy um, outside oil. Absolutely. Well, there we go. So, right, um, should, we, should we move on? Great. So what I want to do is I want to run everyone through electricity maps. Um, what electricity maps does, and to me, I've been looking at this for years now, is, is basically it demonstrates that to get to green on this, you really have two choices. One is to use hydroelectricity, not to be confused with hydrogen. Um, and the second is to use uh, nuclear energy. So, um, for example, if we go to France here, which is green on the map, and click in there, you can see that the carbon intensity of France is 43 grams. Um, and we'll just go in and have a, have a bit of a look here. Um, but you can see that the majority of their energy is produced by nuclear and they're low carbon, 94%. Now, if you compare this to their neighbours, Germany, who have switched off all their nuclear and are using mainly renewables, but they have a lot of coal basically in here to make up their baseload energy. And you can see that the carbon equivalent is 463 grams. So that's 10 times more carbon intensity than what their French neighbours are using. Um, and that's simply from turning off, um, off nuclear. And and, and basically the example goes on and on and on. So if, for example, you go into north central Sweden, uh, you can see that they are able to get to green because they use hydro. And, and it's the same example all around the world. It's either hydro or nuclear. And I think that is the point I'm trying to make here is this is what governments are starting to realise, that you cannot get to carbon-free electricity and green on the map without having either hydro and nuclear. And as we know, um, hydroelectricity can only be provided if you have certain sort of circumstances um, for damming around that. So most of the opportunities for hydro um, has sort of been capped out around the world and that really leaves you with one option, which is nuclear energy. So that was just right. my little example that I wanted to make. Um, if we just go back yeah, to... Yeah, and, 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 and just suggest to people, go download the app, electricity maps... Um, and have a play around yourself, and you'll sort of see the, I guess, the contrary uh, statements by governments claiming to be, you know, green and claiming to be trying to do things, the right things for the environment. But the reality is, the, the like Germany, the, the bulk of their uh, energy is perhaps still heavily dependent on coal. I'm not saying there's no role for coal, but you know, some countries, their you know, evolution is a little bit. Behind the curve, and they're going to still still need um, coal powered uh, stations, uh, fire coal fired stations as well. Yes, power station. I'm getting there. I I told you I was ill. I told you. <laughs> I well, this is really interesting because if I go to 24 hours on this, you can see South Australia in Australia actually turns green. Do you see that? Yeah. 
But yeah, if you go yeah. 30 days, it turns yellow again. So that, but, but, that the, basic- but this is what I was saying because so the, the point I was sort of dragging myself towards is like you look at Australia, which has all the natural ingredients it needs to actually be green as you like, it's yeah. not. And you no. look at Germany, they they're they're they don't want nuclear, but they don't mind buying electricity from France, who's producing the electricity using nuclear. So again, it's it's a little bit disingenuous of them, and they are reliant on that French energy coming through, and they know where it's where it's where it's come from. But you know their own policies won't allow them, or you know they don't, they're fearful of losing uh, votes. It seems um, so. It, that's what I mean. The governments need to have a little bit more of an honest conversation about all of this, and then it seems I think most of Europe is now starting to. U.S. has woken up, um, and you know, the rest of the world is actually leaning into this conversation too. Absolutely. So that's look my my little demonstration. Now, obviously, we know um, nuclear has ninety two percent capacity factor compared to all of those renewables there. Um, even what does that mean? Capacity oh. factor. What does that mean? Explain that to people. Well, it just basically means it runs ninety two percent of the time. Right. Um, so compared to, for example, wind, which is intermittent, the wind only blows certain times of the day. Solar is intermittent. Um, and so this just demonstrates that nuclear energy um, produces consistent energy. And the reason it's 92% of the time is occasionally have, have shutdowns for maintenance and whatnot. Um, but uh, compared to any other type of electricity, its capacity factor is very, very high. The other reason why nuclear energy has come back into vogue is because people have started realising that land is hard to come by. The footprint of wind and solar is massive compared to nuclear energy. And in Australia, we're certainly having battles with farmers, even about just getting transmission lines through, um, you know, so to, to, transla- to, to basically transport the electricity from the solar solar farms or the wind farms is you know you've got to cut through large swaths of of land for that so not only is it you know a lot of land to produce the electricity but it's a lot of land to also get it get it into the cities whereas nuclear power plants they can be very close to the cities and the transmission lines can just plug you know right in very easily so a lot of benefit there this is just this cost per megawatt that we're talking about, and this is really looking at an average levelized cost of energy. And you can see advanced nuclear is right in the middle here. But if you have a look at this bubble at the top, this is the capacity factor. So you've got wind down here with a very low capacity, but it's actually quite expensive. Same with battery storage, extremely low capacity, very expensive. And then you compare that to advanced uh, nuclear, you know, uh, nuclear just kind of it's a no-brainer when you look at it. Um, solar, of course, uh, is cheap, but the capacity factor is so low that how do you do it without baseload energy? So then the other really important thing to think about when you're looking at the demand side for uh, nuclear is, of course, how long a nuclear power plant's life runs for. And, and, and nuclear power plant extensions, of course, add a lot of demand um, uh, to the networks. Um, you can see here that the US has the el- oldest fleet. Obviously, they were the, the starting um, place for nuclear energy in the world and China has the newest fleet down here. So um, it's uh, just a very interesting point to note. Life extensions add to demand for uranium immediately, right? So they have to go out and they have to go and buy that uranium so they can extend the life of these things. It doesn't need 10 years built. Um, so that is a really important thing when you're thinking about a nuclear power plant. Um, so this is just small modular reactors. I just really like to talk about this. This is the future of nuclear energy as far as I see it. Um, the reason why this is so fascinating to me is this plug and play into where the coal um, fire power stations are. So throughout the world, you've got hundreds and or thousands of coal fire power stations. And they've done this sort of review in, in the US, which basically says, you know, 80% of uh, coal can be replaced with nuclear. Um, and the sites are, are reasonable for that. And that will reduce the cost of actually installing the nuclear power plants by 30%. So you plug it into existing transmission lines, et cetera. Um, it's modular. It's fast to build. It can be scaled up. It's cheaper, lower cost of capital. 
Um, so this is a really exciting area um, for nuclear energy and and um, it's not new technology. I think this is one of the important arguments out there. It's scaled down technology. So yes, there are new types of small modular reactors, but a lot of this is actually just scaled down large reactors. Um, so uh, so th those arguing out there that this technology doesn't exist, I think, frankly, is inaccurate. Well, it's also quite useful in terms of for, for investors. You know, they don't want to invest in new technologies, quite frankly, because it needs to be tried and tested. And they, you know, no one wants to make a mistake on, on you know, on their own investment. So this, your point is well made. It's like this is long established technology. We've just scaled it down to be able to insert it into existing infrastructure, take advantage of that in terms of speed to market um, and obviously distribution of the electricity produced to market as well. So they, these are the future. They're fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And I see a big role for these. And they've barely made it into the WNA's um, nuclear fuel report. So that's a really important thing for people to note. Yes, I have my version. Yeah, you got yours? You're, you're in the club? We're such <laughs> nerds, aren't we? <laughs> love it. I love it. Right. Well-thumbed report. I, I, yeah, there's some bits I would, I would definitely love to change, but it, it's, it's really good kind of base level of information. So if, if yeah, if sure. And it, I mean, and, and we can talk about the nuclear fuel report. But one of the key problems of the nuclear fuel report is it takes everything at face value. So if companies, for example, on the supply side say that they're going to come into production in 2028 and they're going to produce definitely you know, 25 million pounds of uranium. Well, they have to take that on face value and that's what goes into this report. So it doesn't account for any sort of delays in, in demand but also or supply. But also by the time this report was actually published on the supply side, Niger had happened, right? So you've taken all that uranium out of the market. Um, you know, there, there'd been three supply shocks. You know, Cameco had reduced their supply output, et cetera. So on the supply side, you know, you're already like, um, limited, but on the demand side as well, it really doesn't take into case that real upper scenario where you suddenly have countries come in and go, we're going to go 100 SMRs in the US over the next 10 years, which is possible despite what people think because France did it in a very short period of time. So why wouldn't you be able to do it in, for example, the US if you decided that that is the policy that you want to take? Absolutely. And I think the other thing, just on the demand side, is it, it does take everything at face value. And it's a case of trust me, I'm a doctor with a lot of these CEOs. Um, the timing isn't necessarily accurate in terms of what they truly believe. It's okay. it's what they need to portray to the marketplace. Um, there's a little bit of that. And also the the, the, the incentive, for, you know, right now all companies are development companies are talking about incentive price. So, you know, not rushing into this because they'd actually have to go and do something. Um, but the the yeah, well the WNA has to, as I say, listen to the what the, and read what the company's saying and go. Well, that must be true because they said it. It doesn't always pl um, play out like that. And I think again, th that's a big problem on the supply side. Um, invariably, and same in other you know commodities and gold and lithium, etc. Is a technical um, process. It's hard. It's mining which always throws up problems every day of the week. And, you know, I think on the supply side, I think there's a massive shock coming as well. So, yes, Niger are being taken out of action. And I, I think the U.S. have finally recognized Niger in, in a key situation. Yes, what's going on in, in, with, with Russia, Kazakhstan, yes, Canada. So there's a lot of supply come out of the marketplace, which, again, is not kind of necessarily all factored into the the numbers we see them at. and neither by the way is price i think that's the problem my main big problem here is is not really kind of factoring the, the the price which is moving quite quickly at the moment but so so maybe they're maybe they're right but trying to work out numbers off of the back of this which we have been doing really hard really yeah, hard really hard now look this this is the world nuclear uh, fuel report. This is uh, the uppercase scenario um, and the reference case and the lowercase. Now, as we can see, the lowercase is not particularly uh, bullish for uh, nuclear. It's got a 1.6% growth, and that's assuming governments just keep the status quo, right? So they don't extend nuclear power plants. They don't really grow. You know, nothing really happens within the time frame that they explain. 
The reference case is is a bit more even standard. And of course, the high case is a 5.4% CAGR. So that basically accounts for a doubling of nuclear power generation um, uh, by 2040. As I said, really, who knows what's going to happen past 2030? So everything from 2030 to 2040, I think personally, this could be way more bullish than what it is, um, particularly with the great unknown that is SMRs. They did try and build it in a little bit into their model, um, but really uh, this is the great unknown. So uh, really could change the market quite dramatically. As we know, there is a huge gap coming into the market in 2030, um, and this gap could get significantly bigger if those SMRs come into the market in the way that we think they will. Right, and come back to what we said at the beginning, and the knock-on effect and the opportunity for investors is the supply side perhaps just ain't going to be there, and that's going to drive scarcity, that's going to drive price, and that should drive uh, share prices as well. Okay, Absolutely, so just reminds- and if you, if you have a government that decides to go really hard into the nuclear energy space, one can imagine that strategic purchasing happens a lot earlier than what potentially would happen if you're an established utility provider. So that actually moves everything, you know, down the timeline, um, not up the timeline, if that makes sense. So, you know, um, you know, 2030, this gap could get substantially bigger um, if policies change quite a bit between now and then, which they're changing so dramatically um, every two years that this fuel report has been written. So quite interesting. This is just reactor numbers. I just think this is really interesting. It just shows China's growth that we all know. We all know China can come out even harder than what they're saying. They're excellent at building these nuclear power plants. They've they've built 55 of them. Um, they're going to have 270 installed by 2040. Um, it's really quite amazing. India, no one really talks about. Um, so they are increasing their nuclear power plant capacity by 42. And Japan... So Japan is is going to grow by 27 under the upper scenario of uh, of of the World Nuclear Association fuel report, which is which is pretty amazing. And 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 Saudi Arabia, they're a brand new entry into the market. And I would say I was at the World Nuclear University last year. And shout out to all my Saudi Arabian friends who turned up. There was quite a lot of them. They're really keen on nuclear. They've developed all the laws and and put everything in place to really make this work there. So um, the Middle East is, 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 is really coming into its own on this. Um, and, of course, um, France, which we know already has a huge amount of nuclear energy, they have a small amount of growth, but they're talking a bigger story. Um, so that could change dramatically as well. Yeah, they kind of rode, rode back. There. I think they were, you know, like two years ago, they were looking at, um, you know, removing some of their nuclear um production now they've they rode that back i think saudi arabia is really interesting they're you know trying to trying to be a kind of um an ac- economic center for energy outside of oil because they're right. looking at hydro- hydrogen solutions as well um it, it's re- really interesting sort of shift in their in their um away from oil well, not away from oil but as well as oil i, I should i should say but the, the, this list is a short list but if we if you look at some of your earlier charts there's like so many countries across Europe, um, South America, Africa, they are all very, very interested um, in nuclear. They are trying to work out how they pay for it and what technologies, et cetera. But it's a conversation that's happening, which just wasn't happening five years ago. Absolutely. It's pretty incredible. Um, And our friends at the World Nuclear Association are doing a tremendous job because obviously you have to get all the regulations in place to be able to have a nuclear energy um, within your country. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing what's happened in the last few years. I would note that Belgium and Spain are the only countries that are going going backwards in this upper scenario. So we know that Spain um, is looking to shutter down a lot of their nuclear power plants. I personally think that's going to be reversed. I don't see how they could possibly do that when nuclear energy, uh, when electricity prices in Europe are so high and there's there's been such a an energy policy and crisis over there. But, you know, I could be proven wrong. And, of course, Belgium as well. They actually recently turned up to France's, um, you know, a little nuclear energy uh, fiesta, uh, which was a few months ago. 14 European countries turned up to that. So massive switch in Europe um, in terms of nuclear energy policy going forward. 
Yeah, so um, that's basically it um, on the chart. Now we're going to just go in a little bit more detail. So China nuclear policy, go hard or go home is how I've uh, labelled this. They are absolutely incredible. They're building at a rate of knots. As I said, they are going to be um, uh, aiming to decarbonise their whole electricity grid by 2060. Um, and, and the way they're going to achieve that is basically... Um, to achieve 20% of their energy is going to be nuclear power. So um, it's a pretty incredible figure. Um, uh, this is uh, obviously their 14th five-year plan on China. Um, and, uh, you know, they have the ability to make these long-term plans when it comes to energy policy because of the way their government works. So um, pretty impressive stuff. Um, hats off to China and basically one of the, as I said, main drivers for that in the past was that they had a lot of air pollution so they were trying to reduce that but of course it also plays into the decarbonisation story. So anyone that says China is not doing their role when it comes to decarbonising the world, I think this is you know, proving otherwise. Okay, and, and what is, what is the, again, what's this do? Because a lot of people say, oh, all the African, um, pro- well, developers, producers, explorers, etc., they're basically looking toward looking east towards China as acquisitors. You know, you've got some obviously some experience in this. We talked about it last week, and we'll talk about it next week with the M and A type uh, stuff as well. Is is China still really first in the queue for anything out of Africa when it comes to uranium? Oh, look, I think China is definitely a major player there. But in the past, you know, you had um, Japan investing, for example, uh, in 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 uh, in a- uh, African plays. So. For example, they were a 10% investor in extract at one point. Um, you had Kepco who were on the scene as well, which is the Koreans. Um, you had the French Arano. So, you know, really with all these strategic sort of decisions being made around the world, I think you're going to find that a lot more governments are buying into sort of um, offtake agreements and uh, uh, uranium companies as well um, all around the world, of course. North America uh, will be, I would say, reserved for US and Canada and the Western world. Um, but, uh, you know, offtake agreements can certainly be signed um, with other jurisdictions as well. Okay. Well, um, like I say, and, and, it is, and I, what fascinates me about this is is they are actually selling their technology outside of China too on, on the nuclear uh, reactor. Uh, that's the moral side of things as well. So, that, say, that kind of sphere of influence thing is... is is noted um, and uh, yeah. well, the US has a lot of technology on the SMR side as well. They just need to start moving really? and start licensing them a bit more quickly, and they'll be in the race as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what are we looking at next? So Japan. basically, Japan until recently um, uh, had sort of gone uh, quite anti-nuclear, unsurprisingly, with the with the Fukushima incident, but. Um, they are aiming uh, to really restart their nuclear energy policy and get up beyond 20% by the end of the decade, which is quite substantial. So um, very interesting uh, there. Um, they're restarting a lot of their nuclear power plants. And of course, they have an extremely established nuclear energy industry there. So um, that is very good, I think, for the whole nuclear sector to see that you know, they are making those pathways and forging ahead. And the main reason is because 90% of their um, energy has to be imported in Japan. So really they want that energy security, they want that baseload energy, and that's what nuclear offers. Right, okay. Well, it's like that's quite a, quite a sentiment shift from from them. And I think, you know, it's people like Rick Rule saying, oh, whilst, whilst the Japanese are back online, I think we'll start to see things motoring, um, you know, and, and it, it, it's, it's taken them a while. And I'm not sure it's been the catalyst um, that everyone um, had hoped for, um, but it's certainly indicative of, of, of these, the change in mood by governments all, all around the world, even Japan, who obviously got lots of reasons to perhaps um, uh, doubt this is part of their future after Fukushima. But there we go. Right. Good slide. Good slide. So the US, 93 reactors currently in operation. They are the largest users of nuclear energy in the world. Um, they obviously led the way initially, um, have a huge nuclear f- fleet. It is aging, but they're looking at extending the lifelines of a lot of those nuclear energy plants. So 
Um, 80 years is, is, is really where a lot of these licenses are going to go to. Um, uh, they are, as I said, looking at building uh, 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 new SMRs as well, although they're a little slow on the uptake. So you can see that it has declined over the past three decades, but it's really starting to turn around. You can see support for nuclear power is up amongst both Democrats and Republicans. So you're seeing these sort of trends all around the world, um, which is great. And they're actually really going in and supporting nuclear energy now. They've signed the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, um, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. So both to assist nuclear power plants stay online, uh, which is very important, but also to put money towards new nuclear builds as well. Um, so uh, that is excellent to see that. Of course, nuclear energy supplies over 50% of clean energy in the US. So it's extremely important that this is maintained going forward or increased further. Okay, and it's kind of now a bipartisan topic in the US. There's, there's no sort of debate across the aisle anymore. No, I think absolutely that's the good not. News and that's so, the big change. Yeah, so you know, it's great to see that bipartisan support and it makes perfect sense, right? Um, you get your energy security, you get your decarbonisation, everything in, in one hit. So. Um, I think that's excellent for the US and we should really start to see them get their skates on. And this is just this U US study, which is literally my favourite study um, out in the market on nuclear energy because it really demonstrates the potential for coal to nuclear conversion. Um, and it says that 80% of coal sites have the potential to host SMR. So imagine, imagine a world where they go, okay, we're going to shut down coal and we're just going to replace it, bang, with, you know, 100 SMRs or whatever it is. So um, that's, I think, what we can expect to see coming down the, down the track. And so that is basically it for the, um, for the USA. Um, there is a lot of hope there going forward and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully they get a little bit competitive uh, with the Chinese and we start to really see that grow. Um, just on Canada, they have a can-do reactor towards nuclear. <laughs> Bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, you know, in Canada, they use can-do reactors. 15% um, of their electricity is nuclear. They're actually really going all out on the SMR side. I think they've, they've already got um, uh, several SMRs um, which have been announced, um, as well as two further SMRs which are not included in the WNA forecast. Um, uh, their licensing and regulatory body has been fantastically supportive of nuclear energy and has been working really closely with the US regulatory body on the SMRs and harmonization of the licensing of those. So that's really fantastic. And of course, Canada is a major supplier of uranium. So it's great to see this literally one of the only countries in the world that supplies uranium and also produces nuclear energy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that's fantastic. Of course, 92 Energy is based in Canada um, as a fantastic jurisdiction for uh, uranium mining and uranium exploration with the highest grades in the world. So great thing about Canada. Great thing about Canada. I, I think the interesting thing here is obviously the, 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 the vast spaces between uh, settlements. You know, you kind of got the East Coast and the West Coast and, and, and a couple of, well, maybe three kind of major cities in, in, in the middle, the SMRs. Sure. This, I mean, Canada's set up for SMRs. It feels like, because I see to your point earlier, no one wants to pay for massive long transmission lines from some sort of central um, point um, out to you know spoken hub type thing. So I, I think it'd be really interesting for uh, Canada and the US this SMR component. Exciting stuff. Exciting stuff. Okay, now we're going to go to Europe and talk about. <laughs> The area that I think has probably uh, done a lot of harm for nuclear policy over the last uh, uh, several years, um, and that's basically because Germany has basically had so much power in Europe. Um, they, of course, wanted to shut down all their nuclear power plants driven by the Greens over there. It's been a great tragedy for Europe that Germany has shut down their nuclear power plants because, of course, that has... Uh, increase the price of electricity all across Europe. It's uh, in, it resulted in energy security issues as well, which we've seen um, with the Russian gas there. So um, had, had lots of problems, but you're starting to see a big turnaround and a big shift in Europe. 
Of course, uh, recently nuclear was included in the European taxonomy, which is extremely important because it means that banks can now finance nuclear. So for a long time, it was on the blacklist. Um, and, and, and basically, uh, nuclear is going to be considered as green energy, which is also extremely important. You probably know more about this, Matthew, than I do. Well, I know a little. I know a little bit because we talk about it most weeks with with young brothers. We have we have covered covered this, this kind of um, inflation in terms in terms of the taxonomy. So the, and this shift has happened literally about six months after Russia Ukraine um, situation came about because you know energy prices across Europe were just just spiking at you know, three four times. Um, the, the levels that people were used to, and again, it kind of wasn't just like you know uh, consumers that were affected by this, which is obviously bad enough, but industry in places like, ironically, Germany, yeah, yeah. Um, to shut down because they couldn't actually afford to produce their goods and make money because they were spending it all on energy. So um, that that whole kind of energy transition, as it's being labelled, um, you know, off, off the back of you know, I think Nord Stream One and Two, is all, it was always contentious, but. And then uh, some would say, you know, the the U.S. Uh, perhaps blowing up Nord Stream two didn't really add much to um, people's um, I, I, uh, perception of remaining in control of their energy prices. So um, I think big conversations have been happening. Um, I think that politicians, you know, as usual, fearful for their jobs, getting a lot of pressure from from um, consumers um, around reducing energy prices, reducing, you know prices at the pump, et cetera, um, they're finally having to think about this rather than this kind of just-in-time mentality of it's there when we need it, it'll be fine, and actually taking control of their own energy uh, production. So I think that's been interesting um, for nuclear um, and, 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 and other energy sources too, um, and people trying to work out who are friends and, and who are not. Um, but at the, at, the, at the end of end of the day, um, it's a long process because huge infrastructures need to be built, whether it be at, at ports or you know energy distribution centers, etc. And you know can you know because we, we we do like to cover ourselves um, in admin and red tape over over in Europe. Um, so things just take you take that a little bit longer. So uh, again, interesting to see how quickly this moves through through the phases. Yeah, absolutely, and. Look, um, I I wouldn't basically look at Europe as the shining future light for nuclear energy. I would more take guidance from what's happening in places in Asia, China, Korea, Japan, um, the Middle East, um, Canada and the US. Um, I think these guys are a slow-moving ship. But it is positive what's coming out of the UK at the moment. And they have just launched their great British nuclear. Um, but I have to say, I, I saw uh, the new Minister for Nuclear Energy in the UK present uh, at the WNA, and geez, he's a ball of energy, par the pun. Mm. Well, let's let, let's see if he's still there in a, in a year's time. Because <laughs> uh, I, th- I think the, 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 pro- the problem, like when you look at places like Asia uh, or even the Middle East, it's long-term planning. We're planning for decades out. Um, because we can see this kind of thing coming down the line. Here in Europe, we're very guilty of just being session planners, i.e., a four-year term. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be committing to spending money into 20 years' time and have someone else take the credit. We'll do short-term planning. And I think that that's that's really a, a very horrifically European uh thing, which is you know, is is the kind of problem area. So it'd be, it'd be nice to see any of these. Uh, energy czars, these nuclear uh, ministers, actually start thinking properly and making commitments to, you know, certainly the British government and, and and all the respective countries to you know to their population as well, and plan these things out properly. Um, get bipartisan. Look at the. I'm even looking at the US. I never thought it would happen, but you know, that's a good example of when everyone kind of gets together. It's it's for the good of everyone, rather than trying to take credit for. Spending our money absolutely, in a and you're seeing, way. you know, bipartisan support. Canada in um, in the US, that's where you can see big hope going forward in the future. Um, obviously, um, in in parts of Asia, they have a different election cycle to what we do 
um, in in the more democratic parts of the world. Um, so that makes a big difference as well. So look, it's it's a, it's interesting what's going on in in Europe and the UK, but I don't think the whole industry is going to turn on on what happens there tomorrow. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I just I couldn't go past saying nothing about <laughs> Australia. <laughs> So much to say. Because, oh, because this is literally the perfect example of um, of when you don't have bipartisan support, um, very similar to what happens in Germany where you've got this ridiculous conversation going on where one side of politics is wanting nuclear energy, the other side doesn't, and you've got, you know, it's too expensive, it's this, that, blah, 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 all completely rubbish, a lot of these arguments that they're making. Um, so I say that nuclear energy policy in Australia is plash, which is an expression from my uh, Northern Irish father-in-law when his tea wasn't warm enough, um, and it's a good way to describe what we're seeing in Australia at the moment. Slash. Slash. Okay, that's that's a new word. We're, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna take that one. <clears throat> Never heard it before, and coming from Northern Ireland. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's on about, but but we'll go with it. We'll run with it. And yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the the Aussies are it's it, it's it's kind of comic, and we quite often on our shows, certainly when we, we do this brand, and we 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 talk about bungles of the week, and Australia f- figures uh, regularly, shall we say, in terms of their um, their outlook, their views on cost, on you know you know in terms of energy cost on. Um, the, the return on, uh, on on investment on some of the energy programs, it's it's politics getting in the way of themselves in terms of making sensible, intelligent, long term decisions, which has long been a, a bugbear of mine. But uh, there we go. Now I think we're, we've reached the end of this um, conversation. Um, and it's it's been a good one. It's been a good I one. I hope you've think. enjoyed it. Um, so I appreciate guess, that. I guess but, the basic point is that the WNA nuclear fuel report is you know quite bullish as it is now um but i think uh you know there is potential for this to really go exponential beyond what they've forecasted um from uh beyond you know the next decade right okay well let's remind people um we'll, we'll come back and we'll do a bundle of the kind of supply demand uh conversations we had today and, and, and last week but next week we kind of got a real special we're bringing it on a kind of heavy hitter um so with you about m a in this space it's obviously uh, happening a lot at the moment it's inevitable there will be more uh consolidation and um we're going to talk through some some um, case studies and examples as well so yeah that'll be a really, how it all comes together it'll be a really interesting conversation because we'll look at the last uranium cycle but also talk about where we see uh m a going in this cycle so it should be a good one okay siobhan as always thank you very much for your time today sharing your knowledge experience and uh views of how this plays out. Thank you. No problem. Thanks.